Welcome to the Health and Wealth Power Hour, the podcast that provides you with the knowledge and insights you need to achieve physical, mental, and financial well-being. I'm your host, Arlen Pickett, a business consultant who's passionate about helping people achieve a more balanced and healthier life. Each week, we'll deep dive into topics related to health and wealth, including retirement income planning, innovative healthcare solutions, alternative funded health plans, and specific actions individuals and business owners can take to gain control of their finances, have access to affordable quality health care, and achieve peace of mind. We'll also be joined by innovative experts who will share their knowledge and insights on prevalent topics. So, whether you're looking to grow your wealth or improve your health, you've come to the right place. Get ready to be informed, inspired, and empowered. Let's get started. Welcome aboard Health and Wealth Power Hour. Thanks for joining with us today on this dreary, rainy day. A little bit chilly out there too, especially with the dampness in the air. But we're going to warm you up today and probably tick you off a little bit in some of the things we talk about. But hey, that's what the show has to be about sometimes. Uh, we are very, very blessed today to have uh, Mr. David Ballot, uh to talk to us in just a little bit about what is going on and the state legislature, uh, they've got uh, just about a month and a half left in this session. A lot of stuff going on, but there is a lot, a whole lot going on in the health care side and the health insurance side. Remember, not the same thing, but there is a lot going on there, and he's going to give us an update on the status of some of the bills that can make a huge difference in what is going on in your business and in your life and how you may be able to access health care in the future. Uh, there's even talk of creating a state of Texas exchange, uh, which would take the place of the national federal exchange here in the state of Texas. A number of states have already done that. I uh, don't know which way that's going to go, but there is talk of that. The first thing I really want to hit on today, though, is the uh, Consolidated Appropriations Act. Uh, we have had some folks on in the past talking about this, but there is a lot that is going on with that. And really, it started back in 2021, January 2021, whenever it started shining light on this is this particular part that we're going to talk about today is very much towards employers, uh, but it can have a huge impact on your business, including I mean, astronomically sized fines. And what the CAA really did is shine the light on some existing ERISA laws. Uh, most employers believe that in 1974, when ERISA came about, what they are now the fiduciary of is the 401k. Any type of 401k, SEP, any other financial side that you have to be the fiduciary of your employees' money. Uh, makes perfect sense. The problem is, is it also was referring to other benefits, including things like your health benefits. But most employers did not read it that way. And quite honestly, most lawyers didn't see it that way. Most company lawyers didn't see it that way. And enforcement has never been there. It's never really been enforced 
on the health benefits side. And, and part of that is because that's very ambiguous, right? Where do you draw the line? What, who is deciding whether something is a good use of employees' money towards benefits? Uh, if you only offer them an HMO or you really do them a favor, well, I don't know what's the value for that. If you're not offering a health plan because you're not legally required, okay, that's great. So that keeps me out of that, ERISA, right? Well, yes, it does, but the numbers can be very difficult to understand about when you're supposed to or when you're required, not supposed to, but when you're required to offer that plan because it's really based on that 50 full-time equivalent, 50 FTE. That's the number they use. That's a calculation that they use. Are you, is your business there? Well, I only have, say, 30 full-time employees. Okay. But what about all of those part-time employees that may come through your business in a year? What about the part-time employees you keep on the staff? If you only have 30 full-time, but then you maybe have 50 part-time employees, there is a very good chance, depending on the amount of time that those employees work, that you are above that limit because it is not full-time employees, but full-time equivalent that could push you into that. So there's a lot that could make you be uh, underneath ERISA that you don't even realize is going on. But the the main thing I want to get your attention on today is that fiduciary side. Now, what that means is you are responsible for making sure that you understand where the money is going from that plan, what your costs are, and how the how everyone's getting paid. So myself, I'm an insurance advisor. I'm an insurance broker. I, call, me, call me whatever you want to. I'm an insurance guy that helps you get a health plan. It is your responsibility. Strangely enough, it's not mine. It is your responsibility to know how your insurance broker gets paid. If you are audited and they ask the question of how does your insurance broker get paid, it is your responsibility to know that information and if you don't answer that you can have the fines the fines can be huge because you don't know how your insurance broker got paid you don't know how anyone got paid you don't know what the commission levels are it may be in the contract but you may not know all the ways that your insurance broker got paid because maybe you're paying him a monthly fee or maybe you paid him a single fee or maybe you paid him a consulting fee and a continuing fee. But is that the only way he's getting paid? Is there other ways? Is he getting paid from the PBM, the, <clears throat> the prescription drug manager? Is he getting paid from them? Is he getting paid from the third-party administrator? Is that person getting kickbacks from other places? All of that has got to be disclosed. That is that is part of what the CAA is saying is that you are responsible as the employer. I know it doesn't make any sense if you really think about it. <clears throat> it should be thrown back on the broker or thrown on to the carrier, but it's not. It is the responsibility of you, the employer, and it doesn't make any difference what size you are. If you are providing a health plan that is under ERISA guidelines, even if you're under 50, you are still required to have that information if you're audited. 
It goes way deeper than that, guys. It's not just about how does your broker get paid, but the fiduciary side of it really includes everything about your health plan. How do all the different parts of people get paid? How are your claims being paid out? If you are fully insured, are you receiving all the claim data? Likely, you are not. But the CEA requires you to have that. They require you to have that claim data. They require you to know what your spend is on prescription drugs. Do you have that information? Is your TPA, your broker, or your carrier providing that information that is required now every year? There's a report that must go in every year to provide that information. The bottom line is, is are you in compliance with a law that's been around for a long time, but now lights being shown on certain parts of it, and they're beginning to have enforcement action on this. One of the things that was included in a bill that passed at the end of last year was millions of dollars in funds towards the enforcement division to get out there and, let's be honest, make examples of some companies to be sure that this is brought to light. If you have questions about this, please reach out to us at EagleCare.com so we can discuss what your situation is. Uh, you know, I can help consult you on this and help you find out if you are in compliance. I can give you the, the questions to ask so that you can ask your broker, you can ask your carrier the right questions to find out if you're in compliance. Time for a break. When we come back, David Ballot, Harlan Pickett, Health and Wealth Power Hour. Be right back. And we are back, Harlan Pickett Health and Wealth Power Hour. Hey, we are super blessed this week to have Mr. David Ballot. He is the director of the Right On Healthcare Initiative for the Texas Public Policy Foundation and also the executive director of Free to Care. David, welcome aboard, buddy. Hey, Harlan. How are you? Hey, doing good, man. Doing good. Where are you at these days? Are you up in Austin? Uh, I'm, yes, that, in Central Texas, uh, right in the heat of session. So uh, it's a beehive of activity. <laughs> All right. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I bet it is. Uh, a lot going on. We uh, I think we have about a month and maybe a week, month and a half to, uh, for this session. Is that correct? Uh, a little over, I would say closer to seven weeks. Okay. Seven more weeks. We go to, go to, it goes to the end of May. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. So, yeah, and, and time's passing so so quickly, it'll be here before you know it. Uh, I, I have... It really has. It's, it's moved right along. It's, you know, it's, you know, January 1st, uh, it was right at the beginning, or we thought we were going right into session, and then, you know, here we are already in April. So it's, it's moved at the blink of an eye. Yeah, it really has. It's been been surprising that uh, it, it, to me that we haven't heard a little bit more i mean I, I know there's a lot going on nationally but that we haven't heard a lot more about what's going on and so i thought it was very important that we got some updates from you on some of the bills that are moving along or that look like mm-hmm. they may be dead in the water that are going to have an impact on us yeah well and, and healthcare has been um moving below the radar because there are, are a lot of other high-profile uh, bills that are moving through the legislature, the property tax bill, the gender mod bill, uh, the parental choice in, in schools bill. A lot of things that aren't healthcare care related that I don't really touch have just been um, 
at, at the the height of all the focus. So, but there've been a lot of there's been a lot of good activity pertaining to to healthcare related bills as well. It's just that nobody's really been looking at them. Right. Well, and and it's interesting because the ones looking at it, of course, are us that are going that are hoping to be impacted and want to bring the light to that. But you're right. There's a lot of uh, pressure uh, or, or pressure point bills, a lot of top of mind bills, a lot, a lot of inflammatory <laughs> type uh, bills that are out there that, of course, are, are going to make the news. Right. But, well, and, you know, I, I, whatever your perspective is, from, from my point of view, that tends to be not as great. For healthcare, last session was such a great healthcare-related um, session because there was a big fight about Medicaid expansion, and from that fight right. grew out this this um, this effort, this initiative to say, "Look, guys, let's be for things that we know are actually going to fix the market, that are actually going to fix healthcare, make it more affordable, more accessible, that are going to fix the safety net. Let's focus on those things." And there was bipartisan effort to do just that. And we were heralded around the country for, for a lot of the efforts that came about. We were the first state to uh, require price transparency among hospitals. And we're uh, doubling down on those efforts here in this session. But with all the other things rising to that, that focus, taking away from what we had last session, we're, we're um, not as honed in. And, and what's bad about that, Harlan, is who does have a voice, it tends to be special interest and lobbyists, not the people. Well, the problem, of course, right there is, like you said, whenever they're not at the top of mind, the lobbyists tend to get more attention, right? I mean, they're always there. Let's, let's not be mistaken. The lobbyists are always there. But if the bills towards health care, as you mentioned, are not getting the attention, then they're more out of the public eye and don't get the public push like Correct. last year. Exactly. That's yeah, exactly what you were talking about. But there are some, we're maybe not as much in the light, but there are some out there that we do want to bring attention to because it's not too late. I mean, like you mentioned, there's still seven weeks left of session. So in that case, it's not too late to bring some of these to the public eye to get the public involved and push some of these forward. So yeah, talk, agreed. Yeah, talk about some of those. Sure. <laughs> you know, there has been a slew of transparency bills. So Caroline Harris, um, out of the northern Austin area, I think she's um, up in the Round Rock, is her district. She brought one, and we just heard it in in, um, in committee, and she did a great job talking about uh, when, when people have had their services at a hospital, the pain with which it is to be able to get an itemized statement. So she's requiring hospitals to provide itemized statements within a period, uh, not itemized statements, itemized bills uh, within a certain period of time. And, and not making it to where, um, you know, folks are having to struggle and complain and fight and cry and threaten just to get a document representing what they owe, what's been paid, and uh, what they're being charged for, which is pretty common sense. But you, you know just as well as I do how difficult it can be to get those documents. Uh, another bill by, by Chairman um, Stephanie Quick, who's chairman of public health, this is one I'm actually pretty excited about. Uh, this requires estimates for scheduled, elective, non-emergent tests and cases. So uh, the way it works is this. This is the language of the bill flows this way. If I'm a patient and I have a valid order for a test, and let's just 
let's just use something small like a CT or ACL repair left knee. Either one will work. But I have a valid order for my for my my test or procedure, and I go to the hospital. And as the bill is 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 states right now, it says the hospital has 24 hours to give you an estimate. I think that that time frame is going to be extended by a few days. I think they make them set, you know, three, between three to five days to give them a, uh, that estimate. Now, if they go ahead and have it done, they've chosen that hospital, they like the estimate. If there are no complications and there's no change of diagnosis, the final bill can be no more than 5% different. Uh, it, it cannot be 5% more than the original estimate they were given unless they have a complication or change of diagnosis, as I said, and those must be recorded in the medical record. Now, let's just, that's the portion of the bill that empowers patients. There's also a back-end portion of the bill that protects patients. So let's just say I'm in a market, Harlan, where there's one hospital. And I really want to go there because my doctor is somebody I trust, and it's the only hospital in town where he has privileges. I could leave the city, but I want to stay in town. I asked the hospital for an estimate. They refused to give it to me. Well, that's fine. What the bill does is it gives the patient um, a right of action that if they are billed, um, they don't have to pay that bill. They, they are not responsible for the patient portion. They can't be sent to collections. They can't, have their, uh, uh, they can't be reported to the credit bureau. They can't be sued. And they can sue the hospitals individually uh, in, a civil course, in a civil right of action. Wow. So this hospital, by refusing to provide a good-faith estimate, is really putting their self in a position if they render those services of not getting they, paid at all yeah if they render the services what what ends up happening to them is they're not going to collect the patient portion and they can't do anything to go after it so they can still bill the insurance company they just cannot yeah. go after any of the patient person uh, portion because they refuse to provide a good faith estimate that's right so, what do you think would happen Any in this case? Up to the out-of-pocket maximum is they've foregone it from the patient. Okay, okay. But what do you think would happen in this case? Do you think that there there's any reason why that hospital would provide those services? I mean, I know you have a background in in hospitalization or in, in hospital administration. So, if they're not going to provide the good faith estimate, and I know this is in the law right now, and so is the is the whole purpose of this to say then we don't want you providing the services if you're not going to do this because otherwise you're just taking advantage? Well, I, I don't know that uh, – I'm not sure what the good reason would be for them not to take that patient or provide the service. I think they might have they, they might have a case against them in court. I'd have to consult with an attorney to see if that's, that's right. But, um, you know, there's no good reason for them to turn that patient away if they have insurance that they accept. And in fact, under their contract with with the networks, if they're in network with say Aetna and the patient has Aetna, uh, they're contracted to take that patient. I don't believe yeah. they can discriminate. Right, right, right. Okay, yeah, yeah. That that makes perfect sense. But on the other side, then it it actually in that scenario, it really makes no sense for them not to give an estimate then. Well, that's that's really what we're getting to. Right. Let me, let me go back to the original price transparency. What we have today, what started with the executive order from President Trump and is, is one of the few orders that has been carried over into the Biden administration and was codified into law in the state of Texas, it's been, it was a great first step. It was a necessary first step. We needed to see what the prices were uh, by code. 
But is it practical? Is it pragmatic? Is it something that's usable by patients? Uh, Not very well. Uh, It's not a a meaningful way to determine and assess what your uh, expected payout is going to be as a patient. That's even difficult for me, and I know the stuff like the back of my hand. Right. Uh, But it it started us on a journey, and we're we're fleshing that journey out here in in a a subsequent session. The world that we need to to resemble is like that of the Surgery Center of Oklahoma or um, Texas Medical Management, where they have bundled pricing. They have a price for a procedure. You know, you're not going in there and you have a you know a CT scan, but you're having the hospital, but there's a facility charge, and then there's this you know add-on price. None of that. If you're going to have a CT scan with this one code, this is the price that includes the read. If you're going to have an ACL repair of the left knee, here's the price soup to nuts, everything that the, the hospital is going to bill for, it's one bill. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with, you know, the surgeon, the anesthesiologist, those are separate typically anyway, but we're talking about the hospital. We need to get to the point where there's bundling of, of payments because right now unbundling ends up being a more lucrative endeavor in the way that they're establishing those billing methodologies. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to go to break here in a second, David, but when we get back, what I really want to people to understand is the whole push towards transparency is because if it go out to a website right now and some of these hospitals that have posted their rates will post it by your who your insurance carrier is and they may Mm -hmm. have your insurance carrier they may have your cash price they may have it listed in various different ways for the exact same procedure exact same surgery and it's listed at four or five, six different price points. And so it is determined by which insurance that you have or whether you have no insurance. It is absolutely ridiculous, and we're going to dig deeper into that when we get back with David, Health and Wealth Power Hour. We'll be right back. And we are back, Harlan Pickett, Health and Wealth Power Hour. Excited to have our guest, Mr. David Balot, Director of Right on Healthcare Initiative at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and also the Executive Director of Free to Care is with us. We're discussing some of the legislation that is going through uh, here in the state of Texas this year that is being considered. Uh, Hopefully some of it goes through that uh, are going to be advantageous to us as uh, the clients of health care, the users of health care across this great state. Uh, David, as we we're going to break. We kind of mentioned that price transparency was meant to be one thing, but as is the case usually, uh, those that were required to provide that transparency have really not taken it as what it was intended to be and used it in a very different method, if they even <laughs> used it at all. Well, well yeah, no, compliance with the law has been meager. Uh, we've actually done better here in Texas. But you were talking about the fact that they've got prices based on who the insurance company is or whether it's their cash rate or their bill charge. Um, and, and sometimes they look like the same number. Um, that, that was an aspect of the law. The law requires them to do that because, you know, what is the price? If you're paying up front and you don't have insurance, that's the cash price because you're paying, paying based on a prompt pay um, uh, you know, framework. Uh, but if you have insurance, the price is whatever the negotiated rate is between the insurance company and the hospital, right? Or, or the, the network in the hospital, if you're in a risk of plan. 
So those are those then become the prices. So that's why it's important to have them broken up by by payer type. And what we've found is, is really fascinating. It's uh, you know you look at uh, normal vaginal deliveries. That's pretty common in, in, in the hospitals. And uh, from in, in the same hospital, the price can be anywhere from $5,000 to $25,000 for the same exact set of codes. But you've got uh, one insurance company here at the $5,000 level, and then you've got another insurance company at the, at the higher level. And that's all come down to, to market share. And so, you know, in Texas, Blue Cross Blue Shield is the 800-pound gorilla. Uh, but then you've got certain markets, like in a Houston where you've got Memorial Hermann and Baylor Scott and White up in, in Dallas, and you've got secondary markets like, like a Wichita Falls or, or, or a Luskin where you've got one or two players and they control the market. So they can leverage their, their market power and position to get better rates. So that's, that's the play, and that's that constant jockeying for position by these different types of organizations to kind of stick, try to stick their thumb in each other's eye. It really is an interesting, if you go out and look at it, and I've read some articles on it, and not just here for you know, looking at prices here in Texas, but across the country, where mm-hmm. you think about you know, kind of what you just talked about. If you Administration-wise, because obviously if you got cash, the administration of that cash, of paying a cash price for the hospital, they don't have to file claims. There's, there's none of that. So that should be lower, you would think, logically. Right. And in most cases, that's true, but not always. I thought that mm-hmm. was very interesting as I was reading articles that there are some markets that you would have, and I think this has a, a lot to do with what you just said, that there are the, the lower cost is based on a provider. So everyone else may not even be close and then you have the cash price, and then you may have a certain uh, insurance company that has the lowest price because they have a market share that allows them to negotiate down. Uh, you know, and just for reference uh, for everyone, typically the the benchmark that is used is whatever Medicare pays, and then you add on top of that. So in in the healthcare industry, when pricing comes up, typically they start with whatever Medicare will pay, and then it's some percentage of that. And mm-hmm. and I know you know that, David. I'm just letting everyone out there know. Even though we've talked yeah. about it, it's always good as a reminder to let everyone know that's, that is the typical benchmark that is used for pricing. And, you know, what you what a lot of folks will decide is, is a pretty reasonable is anywhere from 160 to 200% of Medicare is a pretty reasonable rate. Uh, but you'll see some procedures that are, you know, six, eight, ten, twelve times the cost of Medicare, and that's the that's the uh, best <laughs> negotiated rate that a carrier could do. Yeah, and that's well, and I think car- what throws so much did, confusion on people. Yeah, and the carriers did it to themselves. To be quite honest, uh, I remember when I was uh, running facilities here in Southeast Texas. And, yeah, it was I was in Houston at the time. I remember vividly and uh i i typically was at smaller facilities we didn't have a lot of market share so whenever we'd go try to ask for a contract there was no negotiation involved and blue cross gave us a contract it was for 85 percent of medicare they wouldn't they wouldn't they weren't even giving us uh market medicare market rates they were giving wow. us 85 percent of medicare and i said i'd like to the opportunity to you know discuss this with you guys and, and see how we can improve upon this and they said no this is not a negotiation it's a take it or leave it. 
And in our case, we had to take it because Blue Cross makes up so many people in the state of Texas. Um, and so what, what ended up happening um, with physician groups like the one that I was helping there, it, was, it became untenable. So they had to entertain uh, uh, being employed by the hospitals or having their practices purchased by the hospitals. And then what happened? The hospitals uh, acquired all of these different specialties. They, they established market power in certain parts of the city. And then they go back to the insurance company and they say, well, we're not going to play this game anymore. Now, we don't want 160 to 180% of Medicare. We want 400% of Medicare because we can so it's this jockeying back and forth. But the insurance companies, you know, they, they started playing this game, and now they're having to reap the, the consequences. Um, I, I don't like it, I, and I agree with you. I think the 160 to 180 is where things need to normalize to. Yeah, and it's interesting when you talk to providers, especially on the imaging side, and then you talk mm-hmm. to doctors themselves, the Medicare cost, is, what Medicare pays them is doesn't even really cover uh, so the level of the, the Medicare baseline, in other words, is not always fair either. It, it's what it is, but that doesn't mean it's fair. And so there are times, there's there's without a doubt times when that Medicare is so low that someone cannot even work with that. Uh, yeah. But as a general rule, having a percentage of that is, is where people are, are putting things. Now... I also think that if they they don't have the leverage, if you look, it seems like every year, right, you see billboards, especially uh, folks around Houston, y'all see this all all the time, uh, where uh, someone's leaving the Blue Cross network. This XYZ, Mm -hmm. urgent care, this one, you know, uh, ER, this hospital system, whatever, is here's the billboard that says we're not going to be as of January 1 or as of October 1 or whatever it is, we're no longer going to be in the Blue Cross Network. Well, it's because of exactly what you just said. There's been a take it or leave it. A line in the sand has been drawn. Now, we both know what happens a few months later, right? A few months later, the billboard now says, now accepting Blue Cross Blue Shield, right? Because someone flinched finally, right? <laughs> well, and, and, the, and the reason why, and I'll tell you what, you know, and everybody who's listening, uh, everybody's patient, they know patients. Let me tell you what, what's happening there. They're using, the hospitals are using doctors, and the insurance companies are using patients like human shields. Yep. And so they're, they're holding them out, and they're saying, this group is going to suffer, and we're going to be okay with that unless you give us what we want. When you yep. put it in, the, in those terms, it's pretty disgusting, but that's exactly what's happening. That's exactly what's happening, and, and it happens over and over because you just found out, and, and, and I see it every single year, David, whenever doctors leave a network, and I've had doctors tell me, I didn't even know we were leaving the network. I just happened to be in this physician group or this group, and all of a sudden they kicked us out. They just decided whoever was negotiating the contract, right? And that particular doctor may not have been involved in that. And all of a sudden he found out by getting a letter reminding him that he was no longer going to be in network as of you know, November 1st or whatever the date was. It's, it's you know, shocking. You know, it's interesting, Harlan, is, you know, a lot of people are, are mad at the doctors for yeah. over the price of health care. Yeah. Well, based on the statistics, close to 70% of doctors now are employed by a hospital or insurance company or, or private equity group. Yep. And in fact, United Healthcare is the largest employer of physicians in the country with nearly 100,000. 
so when when and and because of that story you just told, it's it's often true that doctors are employed. They go to work. They're punching a clock. Um, they're taking care of patients. They have nothing to do with the financial part of it. They don't know what their charges are. They don't know what the payments are or, or what the expected payments for the patients are going to be. And if you ask them, they'll say, you know, you need to call this number because they're real. Their hands are, are tied, and they really have no control over it. Yeah, and that is, you know, there is a push, and I know you know about this. It's on the national level to get these private equity groups to get insurance companies and and some of these folks to stop owning hospitals and doctors groups and such because of exactly what you said is happening. I mean, there is zero chance you can convince me that there is not some conflict of interest when the largest health insurance company in the country is the largest employer of doctors and surgeons. There is no way you can convince me that's not a conflict of interest. Well, I, I happen to agree with you, as I often do. Uh, but, you know, look at the hospitals. A lot of the big hospitals, not only do they employ large groups of physicians, but what else? They also, in, sometimes they own an insurance company. And so you've got an insurance company. You've got a hospital. You've got all the doctors in the market. Um, you know, you do what you want at that point. There's no, there's no competition. And if there's no competition, there's no downward pressure on, on the prices. And there's really no uh, um, no accountability to make sure quality is improving. No, and one of the things I, th- I believe people don't really under understand on this side too, and we talked about this a little bit last week whenever I had some uh, some DPC folks on, and that is these doctors that are in these systems, uh, and, and you mentioned these hospital systems that have health plans too. Uh, Christus has one. Scott and White has one. Memorial Hermann. Some of these companies that are hospitals and health systems too. There's incentives and quotas for their doctors to refer within that health system. Uh, why do you only get five to seven minutes with your primary care doctor? And really, there's a lot of things that he could take care of, but he's referring your uh, your care out to a specialist well he's only got so much time and he's also has a quota he must meet to refer within that network to specialists because hey everyone's getting paid everyone better have some work to do we need you to spread the love as it were within our network and is that really how you want to receive your health care yeah that's and that's a valid question is that how you want to receive your health care i i I don't have, um, well, I have feelings. <laughs> I, 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 prefer, I prefer the doctors being independent. I think it's going to be reflective of lower cost and better quality. That's just what I've seen in my history is that empirical, uh, empirically researched with data. I, I don't have that. I don't have that. But just based on my expertise and my experience, I believe that to be true. That's one of those um, things that I, I just know uh, in my gut. But um and that's what we're going to continue to, to, to push for and fight for. And, and we, we've got to have, you know, we, we talked about transparency. The other thing that we're seeing a, a push for in this session is competition. Uh, one of my uh, my favorite representatives in the Texas House, uh, Chairman James Frank, uh, Chairman of Human Services, said something in uh, the Select Committee for Healthcare Reform. And somebody was talking about transparency and trans. You know, it was, I think it was PCMA, it's about PBMs, and they were saying how you know, they wanted to be transparent. He said, but you're not competitive. And if you've got transparency without competition, you're just seeing how much you're getting screwed. Right. And <laughs> it, it, it doesn't get any more true than that. Right. 
Right, absolutely. Hey, we're going to go to another break, and we're going to pick this back up when we come back. Harlan Pickett, Health and Well Power Hour. We'll be right back. Hey, we have got the executive director of Free to Care, Mr. David Ballot, with us. Uh, you guys go and check out what they have going on at Free to Care. You can go out to Free to the number two, Free the number two Care dot org. Uh, they even have a document out there, a pretty long, extensive document on how to fix what's going on in healthcare. Uh, great organization. I'm looking forward to that meeting again uh, later this year, David. It was outstanding last year with, with so much great information. Uh, David is also the director of Right on Healthcare, which is part of the initiative of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. So as we have talked about, there is a lot going on in the legislature. We still got about seven weeks going on. Uh, we just have a few minutes left of the show. David, what else do you want to hit on about what's going on and what action people can take to move some of this forward. The other, the other let me talk about a few other things. They're more, um, you know, I was leading into it here at the end of the last segment. We talked a lot about transparency. There are some bills that are addressing uh, competition, and so some of these um, very um, uh, one-sided contracts, where you know, big big market hospitals in. in primary and secondary markets are saying, well, we want uh, a special tiering in, in the contract. We want all or nothing provisions. We want most favored nation provision. Uh, there, there's a bill out there that eliminates mo- most, if not all of those things, so that um, they can be based on, on what the market is and, and really uh, establish more of a, an even uh, level playing field for everybody in the market. Uh, there's opportunity for having pilots for direct primary care. There's um, uh, uh, opening up uh, opportunities for different types of, of PBM. So lots of good, good, uh, good bills. But what what I would recommend um, folks do is uh, you know go online. The Texas Legislature online has a great tool. You can you can do some um, uh, narrowing of, of just the health care bills. You can reach out to me, and if you have a question about a particular issue, I'm happy to help, or I've got somebody on my team that can help, and uh, we can lead you in the right direction. But one thing I always say is, you know, it's it's not just important for you to know who your representative is. More gets done at the state level than it does at the national level. I know everybody's very impressed with being able to meet with their congressman, but there's not much those guys can do, especially in a divided Congress. But there's an incredible amount that can be done at the state level. So it's important that you not only know who your representative and senator are, um, it's, it's, it's important that they know who you are, uh, because many of the people listening to this show, I'm sure, have some kind of special expertise, whether you're a broker, advisor, patient, doctor. Um, it's expertise that they don't have. You may think, well, they've got plenty of people that know, know things. Well, they, they may have a, a great breadth of knowledge, but the depth, the depth is not always there. So I, I always encourage people to meet with their representatives, get to know who they are, and offer to be a resource. Don't, don't ask them for something. Just to say, hey, look, I'm here. If you need help, I'm here to help. I want to tell you what it's like to be me on the ground floor. I think that is excellent advice because you had mentioned that in, a, in another uh, a podcast that I was listening to uh, you on and you had said, you know, you, you've got some expertise and they don't have that. And bringing that to them and helping them understand certain situations will help them better put together bills 
that may have an impact on that. But one of the other things I want you to remind folks, because you told uh, told the audience about this previously, and that is how willing they are to take your calls and to listen to you and how few it really takes for them to to really bring attention to what the constituency is saying. So just remind folks of that, David. Oh, yeah. Well, it, it, especially if you're a constituent. Constituent calls take precedence over everything else. So if this is the person that, that represents you, um, there's there's – they're all ears. They want to listen because you represent a vote, and people in your family represent votes. So they're they're really going to listen to you. But this was, uh, I think you're, you're referring to a comment that I made, but this was pertaining to somebody in Congress, which was even more surprising. Right. That's and right. They said uh, that anytime they get 10 or more calls in a given day on a particular issue, that they recognize that as a groundswell. And I was shocked by that. Ten. <laughs> yeah, that is amazing. Yeah, it's 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 surprising, but you know, you can muster up more than ten um, on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's it's not difficult to do if you give people um, the information to where they they feel knowledgeable enough to be able to speak to it, or if you want to give them a script. Um, but then also uh, making it easy for them, give them the number to call, and maybe even a name of a person to talk to. Um, it's it's difficult it's difficult to get people to engage because it's it's it feels intimidating if you haven't done it before but it really isn't that big of a deal once you've done it agreed and i think our mindset is it's i'm just me and i can't make a difference but when you hear that number that just 10 people in a day calling about a certain thing brings their attention to it in in a way that they're like, well, okay, well, wait a second, this is my constituents have something to say. Then the fact that we have that mindset is actually a crying shame if you want to get right down to it because, wow, the impact we could make on things that matter to us is is extraordinary. And yet we have this I don't make a difference mindset so many times that – or that, I, you know, if I if – I, did something along these lines and I would have to be a big advocate or I'd, I'd have to get out there mm-hmm. and get a sign on the corner and yelling about something. That's just simply not true. You can make an impact by picking up your phone, by sending that email. I know last year we had a big push uh, through the free to care group on sending uh, emails out to our representatives. You can do those things. Oh, without question. And it's important. The thing that I find um, most prevalent, and this is changing, I think, as we're getting better about talking about healthcare and making it easier to understand the folks. What I what I what I saw four and a half five years ago was an incredible sense of hopelessness. Yeah, people just didn't feel like they could make a difference. It's too big. It's too complicated. I just need my insurance card, and you know, I just hope for the best. That that's that was the world that we lived in, and I think it's still today. Uh, very prevalent, but there's there's a bit of a there's a remnant there. There's a, there's a minority of folks that are getting excited and they're seeing that things are changing and they've been a part of that change and they want to see more of it. So I hope that more and more people do recognize that things can be better. Uh, otherwise, we're going to be in for 
a world of hurt in in a in a system that we that we've earned really because we didn't do anything to stop it. No, you're you're 100 percent right, David. Hey, buddy, I, I sure appreciate you being on the show today. I hope to have you back on podcast here in the future. And uh, and uh, you know you have a, a blessed and happy Easter, my friend. And we will talk to you soon. To you as well. Thank you for having me. You got it, buddy. I certainly want to once again thank David Balot for coming in, giving us a update of all the legislative action that is being taken here in the state of Texas, or that is potentially being taken here in the state of Texas for uh, holding some of the cost in check, uh, for looking more into uh, price transparency, for various other things that can affect us here in the healthcare and health insurance industry. It is, it's good to know that there are folks like David out there fighting the good fight for us, understanding that working at the grassroots level is vitally important. Getting uh, the government, when possible, behind us is great. Uh, but he also understands, just as most of us do, that it's really going to be our words. It's going to be our, truly, that grassroots level. It's going to be us that makes the difference. We get to choose who we work with, who we support and at the end of the day, regardless of what the government does, we are the ones that have to make change. We are the ones that have to bring change and require change. Uh, we are the ones that choose to do business with big insurance companies or we choose to work with alternative funded and alternative you know, access ways, whether that's direct primary care or uh, self and level funded plans, whether you're doing direct contracting, whatever it is to get yourself away from the profiteering of those big insurance companies, we are the ones that have to start making those changes. We are the ones that have to show those options to our clients, uh, give them the information so they can make good quality informed decisions and understand that that is really the best way to get their clients to quality, affordable health care. I, I cannot stress enough that we have to help them understand over and over again that health insurance and health care are two different things and that access to health care in many, many cases is better when you don't have health insurance in the traditional sense. That doesn't mean you don't need to have some type of protection, but you need to have something in place that actually gives you access and doesn't provide that huge financial barrier of five, six, eight, you know, even uh, some of the, your short-term plans, $15,000, $25,000 deductibles. Now, that is a huge financial barrier to accessing health care. So those are the things that we really have to work on. And, you know, it, it doesn't take very much to see. We've, if you've ever worked in the individual market whatsoever, you have noticed every single year the rising rates of your health care plans in talking to your clients. If you've been in the, in, the, in the group space, you've seen that. But now there is a study that has come out. It was published in The Hill, and it was released in, in joint from John Hopkins and Texas Christian University. And it is really addressing the unaffordability of the affordable, what the Affordable Care Act has done. And I thought it was very well written, and the fact that it really doesn't pull any punches. 
it says, hey, after we've adjusted for inflation, we're still seeing that the individual market insurance plans for folks who did not receive a tax credit have risen 59% since 2011. So between 2011-2021, increase in premiums if you were not receiving a subsidy. Well, no wonder no one can afford insurance. No wonder. But imagine this. Imagine what you're getting has a seven, eight, nine thousand dollars deductible. Do you still even have affordable insurance? Of course you don't. Even if you can afford the plan, you can't afford the deductible that's there. But one of the things the article also points out is that these incre- increased pricings and the, the push towards expanding Medicaid is just another attempt by the government and some of the powers that be to push us towards the inevitable single-payer system or socialized medicine. That is the direction we've been pushed for many, many years. And we are on that collision course unless we take action. And continuing to throw people into the marketplace, continuing to throw them onto your big carrier plans is never going to do anything but continue us down that road to socialized medicine. So this is a call to action. It is time to start understanding that we are the ones that have to make the difference. If you don't even know where to start, I'd love for you to reach out to me so I can share with you some of the things we're doing to make a difference in the marketplace, to make a difference in the decisions that people will now have access to when they can look at things that just a few years ago no one would have ever believed were possible. Direct primary care is without a doubt one of the biggest things that folks can engage with that will make such a difference in their health and in their life and, and just in their overall happiness because aren't you always happier when you're healthier? But I do encourage you to start being part of the change. It's time for the status quo to to take a good shot at it. Time to take, that status quo has got to change. If you don't know where to start, once again, please reach out. Love to talk to you about it. Y'all have a blessed week. We're out of here.